This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. At the end of this this negotiation, if we're successful, there'll be a signing, and I believe other problems will arise, and they're going to have to be dealt with. I view this as a process. So, of course, you heard our Doug Krisner talking a little bit about Robert Lighthizer today, and you just heard from him there. He was testifying for the House Ways and Means Committee earlier today up on Capitol Hill. He is, of course, our U.S. trade rep. Let's get into what you need to know about the latest in these ongoing negotiations between the United States and China when it comes to trade. Andrew Maeda is global trade and economy reporter for us here at Bloomberg News. He joins us on the phone from our Washington, D.C. Bureau. Hey, Andrew, good to have you here. There was so much coming out of uh, Washington. Washington today between Lighthizer, Michael Cohen, Jay Powell. It was hard to kind of focus. So what do we need to really kind of take away from what we heard from um, Mr. Lighthizer? Yeah, I think uh, Ambassador Lighthizer was sort of dialing back expectations today. Uh, this is a couple days after uh, President Trump extended the deadline uh, for tariffs to increase on Chinese imports. You know, he also uh, dropped the prospect of a signing summit with President Xi, possibly at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, Ambassador Lighthizer, I think, was uh, a little bit more pragmatic um, you know, he was pointing out that the U.S. wants deep structural changes to China's state-driven economic model, and it also wants an enforcement mechanism, you know, because the Chinese mm-hmm. have made promises before that they haven't kept, and that has, that has definitely frustrated past administrations. Yeah, it's interesting to hear that, too, especially when you've got an administration, the Trump administration, pushing back on your normal uh, enforcement mechanisms like the WTO, right? I mean, it's, it's almost like the U.S. is kind of figuring out their own ways to ultimately get an agreement and then enforce it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, there had been some efforts uh, under the Obama administration and even going back uh, before that to the Bush administration to kind of hold a regular dialogue with the Chinese. It was mm-hmm. very, it was a very friendly kind of ongoing affair. Uh, and I guess the criticism from people uh, in Trump's circle is that it really didn't deliver much in terms of results. Uh, you know, President Trump's style is much different. It's very uh, personality driven. Uh, it's based on his relationship with with uh, leaders at the highest level. Uh, so, you know, we'll see We'll see which one works better. Yeah, I do wonder, and, and you know, I'm sure you've had this conversation in the newsroom, you know, whether this is more about a political win uh, before the 2020 elections for President Trump, uh, or is it about really some significant changes when it comes to trade policy between the United Sta- States and China, and, and, and on those more complicated issues, such as intellectual property and so on? Uh, you raise a great point. I mean, I think the president will have to make a decision at some point whether he's going to be tariff man, mm-hmm. as he's called himself, or, you know, does he want to be the economy, uh, the president who's pre- presiding over a strong economy? Uh, it's possible he could have both, uh, but it's quite possible that, uh, you know, if he pushes too hard on China, that could have a negative impact on the U.S. economy. So I think he's certainly cognizant of that. I mean, we know that he watches uh, the stock market very closely. Um, there was actually quite a bit of pressure today uh, from lawmakers who were talking to Ambassador Lighthizer uh, to push the U.S. not to accept uh, sort of a stopgap deal. So um, if he does accept uh, something that's seen as caving to the Chinese, he could actually 
actually face pressure in, in Congress. Yeah, and it's interesting. You know, you look over our history. Uh, I feel like uh, much has been written about the U.S. always kind of trying to figure out its relationship with China and to some extent control uh, China. And I do wonder, as has also been re- written about more recently, you know, whether China, uh, whether the United States, excuse me, is in a, a really crucial position right now, strategic position, stronger position than China, where this is the time where they can kind of push on some of those issues? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, You know, during the course of history, we've seen the handover of power from one great power to the other. I mean, you know, at the end of the Second World War, it was the British Empire handing over to the American Empire. The difference there, and and the difference there was that the U.S. and Britain were able to reach a consensus, uh, you know, because they had a, they shared a lot in in common. I mean, they landed, you know, shoulder to shoulder uh, on the shores of D-Day. You know, the question here is whether there's enough common ground for the Chinese to reach uh, some sort of similar new consensus with the U.S. So um, I guess that's the big question. Hey, one last question. Is the United States and its measures and moves with uh, China when it comes to trade trying to do too much in terms of managing uh, the trade relationship rather than kind of letting the market forces uh, just do their thing? Is the U.S. doing too much of that, you mean? Yeah, yeah, trying to manage kind of the situation, saying you've got to buy this amount and you've got to do this versus... You know, we believe in capitalism and market forces here in the United States um, to just kind of let that be. I don't think uh, economists right now are really liking the outlines of the deal that they're hearing. Uh, You know, Mm. Ambassador Lighthizer is a very experienced uh, trade negotiator, but he's he's a lawyer. So he's uh, approaching this in terms of how can I get a contract that commits the Chinese to buy X amount of this rather than how can I change the basic macroeconomics so that the Chinese are saving less and eventually they're buying more goods from from other people. So um, it's absolutely a a fair point, a fair question. Well, always nice to check in with you, Andrew. Really appreciate your reporting. Andrew Maeda, he is our global trade and economy reporter at Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone in our Washington, D.C. Bureau. Check him out on Twitter at amayeda. A-M-A-Y-E-D-A. You can also check him out at Bloomberg.com. And of course, if you're on the Bloomberg terminal, his trade stories and other reporting there as well. You gotta get ready for the big payback. Financial industry definitely getting ready for tremendous changes within the industry. It's already happening. We've talked about it a lot, but increasingly we're seeing technology and new technologies uh, invade that space. So let's get into it uh, with our next guest. Uh, Josh Beck is Director of Equity Research, specializing in payments and fintech over at KeyBank Capital Markets. KeyBank, by the way, hosting its annual Emerging Technology Summit uh, as we speak. Josh joining us uh, on the phone from San Francisco. Uh, Josh, nice to have you here. Uh, we We've talked a lot really over the last, I feel like, decade about technology increasingly playing a bigger and bigger role when it comes to the world uh, of finance. Tell me a little bit about this event, how long you guys have been doing it, and what are some of the emerging technologies that are front and center this year? Yeah, so this is our 14th uh, annual year hosting the summit, and thank you for having me. Um, You know, it originally really started out as a cloud and software-focused event. That's where, you know, 15 years ago, we saw a lot of the disruption. I think in the last five, 10 years, right, the way that we think about tech um, has really expanded. Uh, certainly one of the really, I think, probably highest growth uh, subsectors within tech the last five years 
um, has been fintech. And, uh, you know, we had a really good showing. Uh, we had companies like PayPal, um, a number of the higher growth uh, private companies, some of the uh, you know, so-called unicorns that get, get a lot of uh, attention and press. And, you know, I, I think the, the message was, was really interesting. Um, you know, if you take a step back and just think about, you know, what the banking function entails, it, it's pretty simple. It's uh, helping people spend money. It's helping people share money, and it's helping people save money. And are things and, kind of yeah. happening more quickly? I think about the emerging markets, right, Where, which may be jumping a couple of steps when it comes to embracing kind of newer ways in the financial space and technology really kind of being pervasive there. Yeah, you, you've seen some real leapfrogs. I think if you look around the globe and you think particularly some of the economies in Asia where they didn't really have the entrenched banking system and some of the you know particularly the internet companies um, like the alibabas and the ten cents of the world you know it's in some ways leapfrogged a, a lot of what the traditional banking infrastructure has um, really fulfilled in, in more of the established markets I think you know the message that that is coming a, a bit more from the established markets and actually in Europe is this concept of open banking. Mm -hmm. And, you know, w what's really happening there is uh, regulators are kind of mandating that banks become easier to work with for some of these, you know, so-called so FinApps or, you know, new tech companies that don't really have a, a proper banking license but are starting to offer some of those same services around spending, sharing, and saving. And that's what we picked up. You know, it, it started in Europe, but I think it's really starting to hit a little bit of an inflection point um, here in the U.S. Some of the companies that we had uh, highlighting this trend were uh, Marketa. Um, so you've seen a big push by uh, the banks with the Zelle app. So that's a way for people to, to basically share money among banks. Mm -hmm. uh, there's certainly other companies like Square and PayPal that have competitive products in some ways. And Marketa is actually helping uh, some of these newer companies like Square and PayPal actually enable um, the transfer of those funds. So we're starting to see some really interesting examples where, you know, the traditional banking relationship, it used to really start at a branch. Right. And now it's really starting to happen in the app store. And so some of these companies, whether it's PayPal or, or Square are having some really good success in adding a lot of users. And I think it's really catching the eye of the banking community. And, you know, it's one of the reasons you see them put uh, so much resources behind their initiative, their competing initiative, uh, which is Zelle. So lots of, lots of interesting stuff going on. You know, it's interesting. I was <laughs> having a conversation with my daughter uh, last night, a teenager, and she, we were like, you know, there was a day when there weren't ATMs and you had to go to a bank branch to do everything and anything. And you had to, you know, you couldn't just transfer money at any hour of the day kind of thing. You know, you had to do it within banking hours or send checks to people. I mean, things have changed dramatically. I just want, we just got about a minute left. I think about investors who are listening. Um, in terms of the companies that will still be relevant five to 10 years, is it still those big bank names? Is it the likes of Square and PayPal and Intuit? Who do you see uh, from some of the conversations that you guys are having at your summit uh, that seem to have, uh, you know, the staying power that will be around? Yeah, you know, I, I would say I 
for the, the traditional banks, I think it's a little bit of an open question. You know, I think they need to innovate more. I think you heard some of the quotes um, between the BB&T and SunTrust merger about investing in tech. Uh, so I think that will be a recurring theme. For the, the fintech-specific companies, yeah, the, the one that was at our conference and I think really stands out is PayPal. Um, they are adding um, millions of users every quarter, and a lot of them are coming through the App Store. And, you know, what's happening is it did start out kind of as you described, a little bit more of a millennial audience mm-hmm. using their very popular app, Venmo. But we, what you're really starting to see is the network effects take hold where, you know, maybe the, the millennial is starting to – uh, provide a service or something else to you know somebody that's a bit older, like uh, right. thinking about my babysitter as an example. So I'm getting pulled into the ecosystem, even though I'm a little bit beyond Got it. Uh, the definition of millennial. So I think they have a tremendous amount of opportunity, and All I, right. I don't think it's really fully appreciated. Josh Beck over at KeyBank Capital Markets uh, on the phone from San Francisco. So Tesla's Elon Musk tweeting again today about some pending news. It sent the stock rallying uh, up roughly 6%, which makes me curious about what his Twitter sitter has to say about that. Did you even know Elon Musk had a Twitter sitter? Yep, he does. Dana Hall knew that. She is technology reporter at Bloomberg News. She joins us on the phone from our San Francisco bureau. Fun story, curious story, uh, maybe not surprising knowing Elon Musk. What is his Twitter sitter? Do we know who it is? We don't know who it is, but what's really interesting is that um, when Elon Musk settled with the Securities and Exchange Commission last fall, the, the agreement basically mandated that Tesla's board put into place, you know, kind of controls around executive communication, particularly Elon and his tweets. And so there was all this speculation, like, well, did they ever hire someone to actually do that or not? Who is it? Then the general counsel left. So there's always been a lot of speculation about whether there was indeed a Twitter sitter or not. And then when the SEC came after Musk, for his latest tweets around vehicle production uh, in one of the in all the filings you actually can see that yes indeed there is a securities lawyer whose job it is is to kind of review Elon's tweets so now we know that this person does exist they've been in the role since December 18th but we don't know who it is is the SEC okay with this do they feel like okay great we've got it under control and I only ask that because funny enough as you well know Elon Musk has been out there tweeting again today saying I've got some Tesla news and speculation the stock is up and you know at the backdrop of this you've got um, a a convertible note out there that if it reached a strike price by March 1st, um, you know, this could help them out. <laughs> so I just, I wonder, yeah. how do you make sense of all of this? I know, it's it's so interesting. You know, he, he treats, tweets something cryptic and changes yeah. his Twitter profile from Elon Musk to, to Elon, Elon Tusk, Tusk. And everyone's like, <laughs> think, I mean, the guesses are just sort of wild. I, I don't, I mean, even if the stock, I mean, they, they have to pay off this debt with cash because there is this whole 20-day moving average thing with convertible bonds. So yeah. they're going to pay off the debt. Um, but then they will need more cash <laughs> for sure. Right. And, you know, there's still a month left in the quarter. So I have no, I honestly have no idea what it is. Um, I don't think it's a big product reveal because yeah. reporters who cover the company weren't like invited to an event in LA or Fremont. Um, but it could be any number of things. It could be a lease for the Model 3. It could be that they're entering a new market. It could be an update to their supercharging. It could be new autopilot software. We really don't know. Right. We don't. And you know, I got to tell you, uh, Dad, Anna, 
<laughs> on TweetDeck, you know that you know we can monitor a whole bunch of things. I've got my homepage. You know, if I oh, mentioned yeah. in a tweet, the other two folks that I follow, Donald Trump and Elon Musk, because they are so prolific in terms of tweeting. Right. Yeah. I mean, they really are. They really have def, have made deft use of the platform mm-hmm. uh, in ways that has gotten Elon into trouble with the SEC. But it's kind of amazing, you know, he's still back at it, tweeting potentially. I mean, even though he's not tweet, even though he's tweeting nothing except that there's news that's moving the market. So this contempt of court request. I mean, where do we go from here on this? So the judge has given Musk and his attorneys a deadline of March 11th to refi- to file their response, mm-hmm. uh, and then. It's Presumably, there will be some kind of hearing where she will determine whether he was in contempt or not. Um, And, you know, I mean, and I think, you know, there's this interesting dynamic where, you know, the SEC, on the one hand, doesn't want a CEO like Musk to sort of get away with behavior that they've already deemed inappropriate. At the same time, they don't want the company to tank because their goal is to sort of protect shareholders. And and so so I think, you know, some people are saying that the SEC is a toothless organization and that he's just going to get another slap on the wrist. But he clearly isn't feeling particularly alarmed by this. I mean, because he's back out tweeting today. Yeah, exactly. So this Twitter sitter, uh, you know, so is it is it an individual? And I know you, there's some speculation about who it might be, and we could talk about that a little bit. But is it an individual who is... It's, can, it's, can, it's, wait, wait, is it catching oh. his, you know, his tweets before they go out or is it like, how does it do we, how much, how does it work? Right. I mean, I think, I think the, in, an, in an ideal world, all of his tweets would be pre-approved right. by an attorney before kind they go out. In practice, right? that's not happening. We know from the filings that were revealed by the SEC uh, in the complaint, you know, earlier this week that, you know, on February 19th, he tweeted out about vehicle production. Then the attorney who is the designated securities counsel reached out to him and was like, whoa, we've got to talk about this. And they, they met at the factory and then drafted the corrective tweet together that went out four hours later. Um, so I think the real distinction is like, you know, what is market moving news? What needs to be pre-approved? You know, can he tweet stuff without? I mean, it seems yeah. like there's this gray area in terms of what exactly the securities lawyer is supposed to be doing and, and what is considered material or potentially market moving news. And forgive me, did you say who you thought the speculation is of who it might be? Well, we know that it is an in-house attorney okay. uh, who's, who, who currently works at Tesla. I do not believe that it is Dane Batswinkas, who is the recently departed general counsel. I don't think it's the general counsel. I think it's another attorney on staff. But, you know, Tesla is a company of over 45,000 people. They have several lawyers on staff. Right. Uh, I, I, you know, I don't want to get into names because it's just pure speculation on my part. But the SEC knows, right? Yes, the SEC absolutely knows who it is. Ah, just fascinating, right? But it's just a reminder. This is a guy, I mean, you know how he operates. I mean, he kind of does his own thing. He does. And that's part of his charm and part of his mystique. And, uh, you know, a lot of people are betting on him uh, as much as they're betting on the company. Um, and, you know, some people, I mean, it's interesting if you look, if you do look at Twitter, I mean, some people are mad at the SEC. They feel like the SEC is coming after this guy when they yeah. should be spending more of their time going after the big banks. You know, it's funny, though. I mean, it just shows, though, when he does tweet the ability to move the share price. I know Gene Munster uh, weighing in. I think you put the story out that he says those who are buying Tesla shares because of the tweets may end up being disappointed. So I guess we'll have to wait and see. Yeah. All right. 
tomorrow at 2 p.m. Pacific. Okay, I'll be ready. Are you ready? (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Always good to check in with you, Dana. Thank you so much. Dana Hall, she is technology reporter at Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone from San Francisco. Do check out her posts on Twitter at Dana Hall. You can also check out more at uh, Bloomberg.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the Bond Report. We've got a lot going on. Of course, Jay Powell up on Capitol Hill. Day two of testimony before lawmakers. Let's get into that. We've got a conversation roundtable, economic roundtable. First of all, though, let's talk just about the bond market. Kathleen Hayes, Global Economics and Policy Editor at Bloomberg News, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, running our way to the studio. You know, I have to confess, the I adrenaline think this is one pumping. of those days when there is so much to rivet one's attention and get dragged into well, all kinds of conversations. I did a Twitter poll. I'm like, so what are you watching in Washington? And I just whittled it down to Jay Powell and Michael Cohen. But there was also, of course, Mr. Lighthizer up on Capitol Hill talking about trade. You've got the president, you know, in Hanoi. Uh, we've got that going on. I just feel like there's a ton of economic news on Europe, on China. Like, there's just a lot going on. I agree. You know, and if it, I guess you could say that if it, all of it weren't kind of really pretty serious, you'd say, <laughs> gee, isn't Fair it enough. fun? I mean, it's a fascinating India and Pakistan. We haven't even talked about that. Hello, yeah. Our Mr. Breslow writes a great market column. I love to read it every day. And he's like, are we focusing on the right things here, people? Because it's just amazing how I feel like markets have, for the most part, and we know those tensions have been there forever, it seems like. Um, But, you know, markets just seemingly, at this point, shrugging it off. Anyway. Where would you like to begin? Oh, gosh. Maybe something easy. I did, you know, I did spend about three hours watching Jay Powell uh, yeah. give his testimony to the House Financial Services Committee. It takes longer because it's a bigger committee than the Senate Banking Committee. And really, it's in, I think partly what's interesting is see what is what the what these legislators are focused on. And they are n- n- not completely focused on the economy. They have they kind of make political points or ideological points on both sides. Um, what, what do we note today? Uh, someone did ask Jay Powell about about the Powell put. It was, mm-hmm. a, it was a second questioner. And uh, he said, well, you know, we do watch financial market volatility, basically, and see if it can affect the economy, which is, that's the, that's what they say. We have, you know, we, I believe them. That's what they do. Mm-hmm. And, that, and then no one else asked it again. But there were a lot of questions about wages and inflation and banking. That's a big topic. Do, are we too strict on the banks? Are we not strict enough? So Jay Powell's done. Um, obviously, uh, Michael Cohen isn't such a factor for the bond market. Well, well, hey, uh, well, hey guys, let's just quickly do the bond market because I want to bring in uh, Jeffrey Cleveland because he's also with us to talk about oh, great. Uh, Jay Powell. But the bond market, any significant moves today? Well, it's interesting. It's down because the, the 10-year note, you can see it's down uh, about a half a point. Mm-hmm. The uh, 30-year bond is down a point and a quarter. And uh, this, again, as Powell... So yields have edged up. Well, they have. Um there's been some, uh, there was a uh, sort of a bear steepening in the German bond market and mm-hmm. a, a wave of corporate debt pushing yields higher. That's apparently what's really pushing this market right now. So I think maybe it makes sense. Let's put our f- focus on supply, other things, and, and put the Fed on the back burner at least for a day. All right. So let's bring in Jeffrey Cleveland as well. Uh, roll him into this conversation. Chief Economist at Payton and Regal uh, on the phone from Los Angeles. Um, Hi, Carol. Hey, nice to have you here. And Jeffrey, as we mentioned, there's so much uh, coming out of Washington today. A lot of different fronts on trade, uh, on the president, uh, and certainly, of course, uh, on the Fed and the economic and monetary policy outlook, thanks to Jay Powell. Jay Powell specifically, what do you think uh, was the most important in terms of uh, the questioning and testimony today? 
Well, you know, actually, I'm looking at the twos, thirties curve, the 30-year yield rising today, and, and that curve is steeper than it has been in quite some time, probably going back to last, uh, the middle of last year, middle of 2018. And, I mean, I think this is interesting because when the curve was flattening, Carol, everyone talked about a recession being around the corner, right. the yield curve, you know, and now we have a curve steepening. It's just one day, of course, but I think that's uh, an interesting thing to take into account. It's related to, the, to what's going on, I mean, in terms of the Fed, Jay Powell, everything I heard from Jay Powell is that they're comfortable being, you know, on pause. I think this is not a permanent pause. I think this is just a temporary pause until, you know, we have easing of financial conditions, which is well underway. He mentioned that uh, a couple of times. Until we get some more clarity out of the global data, I think that's definitely weighing, weighing on the sentiment and weighing on the the economic backdrop. Right, right. So we need, we need to see improvements there. But I think the Fed will move sometime later in the year. But for now, the front end is pinned down and the, the, lo- the long end is having all the fun. Well, you know, it's interesting um, th- to look at uh, our Bloomberg terminal, one of our, our charts. Um, Hashtag 4346 in front of your terminal. But it's look, just looking something really basic. It's uh, inflation expectations looking at 5, 10, and 30-year break-even rates, right? And you can see they got they really got low at the end of the year, right? But they're definitely back on an uptrain, far away from the highs. Contrasting that, Jeffrey, to the most recent University of Michigan survey on inflation expectations and mm-hmm. people's expectation for what the two-year, excuse me, one-year, five-year out inflation rate is back down to like near-record lows, one word, I think, is probably at the heart of all this, oil. Uh, oil prices sort of fell in the, in the latter half of the year, the Q4, and I think that dragged down or had a big, dra- uh, big drag on inflation expectations. So I think that's part of it. Now oil prices have uh, picked back up, and, and inflation expectations sort of tend, to follow, tend to follow oil prices. The consumer, as far as the consumer expectations of inflation, is a little bit difficult. We actually wrote an article on this, you know, because they, they, they phone up uh, households and ask them what they think about it. And it tends to just sort of track what the previous 12 months was, is what we found. And, Jeffrey, what about the balance sheet? For the Fed minutes, uh, Fed officials, including Jay Powell, and I'll make it pretty clear, they seem like they are pretty eager to start telling us about a balance sheet, uh, the, the runoff coming to an end, or at least signaling how they're getting there. What do you make of that? And what would you like to see? Well, it's amazing. This topic, uh, in my view, quantitative tightening, the shrinking of the balance sheet, is not a big driver of uh, the financial markets. It shouldn't be. It's sort of a sideshow. It was happening in the background. Uh, it's not the reverse of QE. So we weren't worried about you know liquidity being sucked out of the financial system, as some people were. But it became such a talking point in the, the markets that it appears that Fed officials just said, okay, fine, if that's, if that's going to tighten financial conditions, if that's what driver of this sell-off that we're seeing here, in December, then we're going to remove that. You know, we're going to we're going to wind the balance sheet down sooner, and it's going to be bigger. It's, you know, to, to quote the uh, the chairman, it's going to we're going to have an ample supply of reserves. Well, quick question, just to both of you, if I may, and forgive me for for interrupting, Jeffrey, but I do I am curious. So, if there's this Powell put, and he says we're watching the financial markets, we've had quite a bounce off of the December 24th low. Should we anticipate that the Fed sooner rather than later will start raising rates? Just got about 20 seconds. Yeah, I think he put forth three things that was keeping the Fed from hiking. One was tighter financial conditions. That's changed, as you point out. The second was the, the China and the, the Europe situation. That, I think, we're seeing some tentative signs of uh, improvement in China and in Europe. We don't see a recession in, in Europe. And then the third is just inflation. 
sometime by mid-year, Carol, I, I think inflation will will perk up mm-hmm. somewhere at or above 2%. May I quickly underscore, away. at the press conference, Jay Powell was asked by our own Rich Miller of Bloomberg News, what would you have to see to get back on board with rate hikes? And he said he'd have to see inflation moving higher. I think that's the number one. He's just keeping yep. a watch on inflation. All right, folks, thank you so much. Kathleen Hayes, Global Economics and Policy Editor at Bloomberg News. Catch her on Daybreak Asia tonight at 6 p.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg Radio and TV. Jeffrey Cleveland, our thanks to you as well, Chief Economist at Payton and Regal. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close on this Wednesday afternoon, and so much for investors to digest. Uh, coming out of Washington, coming from around the world. Equity is looking to close just off their highs of the session, still down across the board. Let's get into it with Alan Lance back with us. He is research director over at LanceGlobal.com, president of the firm that bears his name, and he joins us once again out there in Toledo, Ohio. What are they talking about in Toledo, Alan? Oh, not too much as far as uh, more of the, the weather and uh, items like that uh, rather than uh, the big financial headlines. Um from that standpoint. Yeah, well, that's what I wonder because, right, U.S.-China trade, North Korea, uh, Michael Cohen. um, You know, I am curious when you talk to clients, investors, kind of what's top of mind for them? Yeah, it seems like um, um, the the China um, trade situation um, has really uh, been a key um, catalyst to the the rebound as far as in 2019, Carol, and then you combine that with the Fed's dovish uh, tone uh, and new mindset uh, after the December uh, shakeup. And I think that trumps uh, any earnings or, or um, you know, economic uh, concerns right now. So, so I, I think that's, that's what we're seeing, um, again, testing that 2800 on the S&P, so we'll see how that uh, uh, unfolds. But uh, that, that's been... Uh, I think the the key catalyst to to bring it up and back to this level at least. Your research is always fun to read, and you know you talk about specific names, and you say uh, how you're interested in buying kind of select bargains, and rather than going after those high flyers. And we have seen some stocks bounce big time off of that Christmas Eve low. Qualcomm is a name that you like. Um, talk us through that. Yeah, Qualcomm is is uh, you know a quality company that's been um, as as far as battered like uh, so many uh, bargains that we picked up in December. Um, so so even earlier this month we were buying it under fifty dollars over a five percent dividend. Um, I, I think it's it's a situation where the the negatives uh, w- with the uh, as far as patents and and uh, the Chinese. Um, situation um, are, are overblown and, and that has created an opportunity so so I, I think uh, in these mega caps we're seeing still some some bargains like a Qualcomm uh, especially on weakness uh, and and then there's uh, some of the smaller uh, companies uh, uh, that uh, uh, more of that barbell approach we talked about uh, mm-hmm. uh, late last year that uh, I, I think uh, still creates opportunities even though we're you know we've rebounded 20 percent from the lows well speaking 
speaking of opportunities, at least in the M&A world, you got to feel pretty good, right? You guys liked Celgene. You said it was, I guess, your favorite uh, or one of your favorites for 2019. And here it is uh, up about 42% this year after Bristol-Myers agreed to acquire the company. Um, that's got to feel like a pretty good call. Yeah, we usually don't see that. I mean, we talked uh, as, as far as New Year's Eve, as, as far as talking mm-hmm. about Celgene uh, being our favorite, and and three days later uh, you, you get a, a premium takeover from um, Bristol Myers. So, so you know, we wouldn't have talked about it with uh, your listeners if uh, if we knew that was going to happen. Uh, being a, a long-term investor, because uh, we we're saying uh, you know that uh, buy into this weakness, and and obviously we didn't know uh, something like that would would happen. But you know, we we're fortunate with Co. As, as well, and, and United uh, Natural Foods, which we talked about, is, mm-hmm. has bounced up nicely uh, from their super value acquisition. And I think, you know, we're seeing that, where the market's overreacting, some acquisitions are, are taking longer to integrate, and that's creating some, some buying opportunities. So I would say it's rare that you see these companies, you know, going up, you know, 40, 50 percent in a, in a month or, or a few weeks. Uh, but when you're buying bargains, sometimes you, you get lucky and you get those short term or more immediate uh, uh, as, as far as results. Alan, though, what about a United Natural Foods, which you said, you know, you guys like it's up 42 percent this year. What at some point do you say, listen, this has had a nice run. I'm OK to back out of it for a little bit. You know, we do on a lot of these, Carol, but yeah. like on United Naturals, Celgene, um, even Cody, um, we, we haven't sold uh, a share. I, I think they can go a lot higher. I mean, they've been just decimated. So so I, I think it's a situation where, again, the market's overreacted. So now it's it's still undervalued, but obviously not as much. When it gets to fairly valued, then, then we start putting some uh, thought into uh, taking some partial profits and, and uh as the uh, pendulum swings to, you know, hopefully we see a, an overvalued situation, then then we definitely start start selling. But but in in those that we just talked about, I, I don't think we're anywhere near uh, uh, as, as far as uh, fairly valued levels, except for with Celgene's takeover. Alan, you noted CVS in your in your research note as well, and of course this was something that we talked about just recently, um, kind of just gobsmacked in terms of. You know what's happening this year from the company and its uh, you know takeover a few years ago, about four years ago, of uh, Omnicare. Um, how do you see CVS at this point? Because as you reminded us, you guys recommended shorting this name a few years ago. Uh, with the hit that CVS took, is it a time to kind of think about getting back into this name? Exactly. We we um, you know thought when the when the stock was over $100 a share a few years ago, and there's a CVS, Walgreens, um, and in this area, Rite Aid on every corner, it, it made no sense. And 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 the stock is uh, you know went from the hundreds to 80s, and now with the Aetna uh, acquisition and and uh, some um, again longer than expected integration uh, for 2019. Now it's, it's going to be a down year. I think you're going to see this stock uh, pressured. Uh, to a point where you know it's at, uh, getting to be bargain level, so so we're not saying it's a bottom, but we're going to start uh, nibbling here in, in in the 50s, and and if it goes down further uh, with a three and a half uh, percent yield and and uh, trading at the valuation it it, it is, I, I think those acquisitions they made will will as far as uh, enhanced shareholder value over the long term, and, mm-hmm. and because uh, you know they're getting hit 
over the short term on, on the integration issue, um, you know, it, it makes it even a more attractive uh, uh, long-term risk-reward ratio for us. Yeah, fascinating. A lot of names, though, certainly in the news as of late. Alan, always nice to uh, get some time to talk. Alan Lance, Director of Research, LanceGlobal.com, President of Alan B. Lance & Associates. Alan joining us on the phone from Toledo, Ohio. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.